Hello everyone, Brandon Burns, Chief Executive Officer for Peaks Recovery Centers. So excited to be here today with you on this very special episode of Finding Peaks, where we are joined today by Dr. Stephen Alardi, clinical researcher at the University of Kansas. He's been on many different episodes of ours talking about his book, The Depression Cure, his TLC model, and so forth. If you haven't seen those, go back in time, check them out. It's great material and an excellent book. Uh, but the other guest that's on today is a very special guest uh, to both Steve and I, and we are excited to be having a discussion with him. His name is Sebastian Junger, and he is an author and a journalist. And so without further ado, let's dive into it and uh, get the discussion going. So yeah, thank you again uh, both for being here. You know, Sebastian joining us from New York City, uh, Steve joining us from just south of Kansas City, I believe. Uh, in Kansas? Uh, just so southwest, yeah. The southwest. Lawrence. Lawrence, Kansas. Kansas. Home of the fighting Kansas Jayhawks, um, which maybe a few few folks have heard of. It's important. And uh, Brandon Burns, Chief Executive Officer of Peaks Recovery Centers here in Colorado Springs, Colorado. Uh, just, uh, you know, I think first and foremost, just want to say that, uh, you know, the journey for how we got here, uh, you know, I met Steve several years ago in 2017 at a conference and he's talking about his book, The Depression Cure. Uh, we ended up uh, hanging out a bunch, and I think we've befriended each other in the process. I think we can call each other friends almost. Uh, maybe we're texting in oh, the background. Oh, 100%, 100%. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I count you as a friend, Brandon. So the, the last time we did a, an episode together, we, you know, we're waxing philosophical in the background, and Steve's like, hey, I'm going to send you some books. And I was like, great, I love reading and love listening to books, certainly. And one of the books he sends me is Tribe uh, by Sebastian Younger here, uh, joined with, joining up with us today. And um, just immediately floored by uh, the writing, the storytelling, um, you know, even listening to the audio versions of the text and, um, you know, you walking me personally through your experiences within war, um, you know, as a journalist and the intensity of those environments filled with hardship. And it inspired me in a variety of different ways. I think, you know, tribe is a word we use often in our company culture here at Peaks Recovery Centers. And forming that sort of those bonds and belongingness have just been really essential uh, out of that inspiration. And uh, the three books that I'm, I'm most familiar with um, of Sebastian's work are uh, Tribe on Homecoming and Belonging, War and Freedom. Uh, I've personally read through those several times and uh, just learned a great deal about them. And uh, so thanks for you know, bringing those texts into the world, Sebastian, first and foremost. Um, but to kind of bring these two worlds together for why I've got you know, Steve on the call with us today, uh, as we talked about kind of prior to the episode, uh, in Steve's book, The Depression Cure, uh, he references out of the therapeutic lifestyle, the TLC model, uh, where he's addressing uh, the modern uh, depression epidemic at its source, he states, the fact that human beings were never designed for poorly nourished, sedentary, indoor, sleep-deprived, socially isolated, frenzy-paced of 21st century life uh, hit me. You could, you could you could add screen screen addicted. Screen addicted, uh, right? Screen, screen addicted as well, too, just to just to get it in there. But um, uh, in also in the book Tribe, um, it's highlighted uh, what the Journal of Effective Disorders concluded in 2012 as the source, the economic and marketing forces of modern society have engineered an environment that maximizes consumption at the long-term cost of well-being. And in effect, humans have dragged a body with a long hominid history into an overfed, malnourished, sedentary, sunlight-deficient, sleep-deprived, competitive, inequitable, and socially isolating environment with dire consequences. Um, 
both statements, a mouthful, but both very much connected uh, in that way of things. And so what I'd like to set kind of the stage for our viewers out there uh, is the foundation of what we're experiencing as the problem and, and primarily why these texts are being written in the first place. And just hopeful, you know, to start here, Sebastian, to, you know, bring us forward. Obviously, you placed that, uh, that reference within the book Tribe uh, for a reason, and it, it must have spoke to you in a way, certainly, that I think it's speaking to the three of us in this room. And I would just love for you to expand on that a little bit for the viewers today. Yeah, so the, the idea for Tribe came to me, and the idea is basically this, that some of the psychological struggles that veterans have when they come home um, might be rooted in a kind of alienation rather than actually a disorder that they're carrying themselves. They might be having a healthy reaction to an alienating society. Uh, and so uh, the idea came to me when someone said, damn, why, why are vets so messed up when they come home? Why are they so messed up? And I, and I remembered like uh, many guys in the platoon, uh, you know, platoon is 30, 40 men. It was all men in this case. And they were in an area, a hotly contested area in Eastern Afghanistan called the Korangal Valley. And I was with them off and on for a year. And, you know, when the deployment ended, I experienced this terrific longing to, for, for that place. I, I wanted to go back and I felt quite guilty about it because I thought, how can you, you know, how can you long for something that was so hard on everybody? But then I found out that a lot of soldiers that I'd been with felt exactly the same way. And one of them was like, oh, I go back there in a heartbeat. I don't want to go back to America. Are you kidding? I go back to the Korngal in a heartbeat. They're living on a hilltop, getting shot at every day, no internet, no communication with the outside world, uh, no cooked food, sleeping on the ground, like tarantulas, scorpions, and no women, no television, no nothing. I mean, it was really austere and dangerous. And they missed it. And suddenly I remembered something that a friend of mine, uh, who's long since passed away, he was a lot older than me, he was sort of a surrogate uncle, he was born out West. He was Native American. Uh, uh, and uh, he was born on a wagon. He grew up in a very traditional society. And, and, and he said, he told me something I didn't quite believe at the time. He said, you know, all along the history of the, the history of the American frontier, from Pennsylvania all on West, all the way through, te you know, the Midwest and Texas, all the way to California, the, the sort of white people were constantly, constantly running off to join, you know, this is what he said, Join the Indians. Join us Indians, right? Mm -hmm. And we Indians were never running off to join the white people. And I and I never I was never quite sure if that was true. I, I mean, I like the idea of it, but I was like, is that really true? And I started to research it. And indeed, it was a real concern along the frontier. Even Benjamin Franklin wrote a kind of despairing letter to a friend, like, why is it if we're a superior Christian society, why is it that young young people young young people in the colonies keep running off to join the native societies? Uh, the savages, as he called them, and the reverse never happened. And suddenly I put the two together. I'm like, oh, my God, of course, we're social primates. We love connectedness. We love living in small groups where we have to we rely on each other for our survival. And when you deprive people of that, there's a real loss there. And of course, what what I just described a moment ago is a platoon in combat. It, it recreates our evolutionary past very, very closely. You expose young people to that. Um, they respond in very positive ways that have a lot of genetic encoding in it, a lot of evolutionary history to it. And then you wrench them out of there and bring them home to America with, with all of its um, alienation and all of its uh, so, the, um, fractured communities. And trauma is the least of it. I'm going to end with this. The Peace Corps has the same problem. One quarter of Peace Corps volunteers struggle with depression when they come home. 
what they're struggling with is the grave, grave human loss of no, no longer being in a small community. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for coloring that, uh, that part in. Uh, Steve, would you like to add to that at this time? Uh, absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it, for me, the first thing that brings to mind, Sebastian, is so my background and training, I'm a clinical neuroscientist, brain guy. And that's what I did for the first 10, 15 years of my career. And then a magical thing happened. I got, I got tenure in my, <laughs> my, <laughs> in my university, which, um, you know, is a controversial uh, kind of event. But, but for me, one, one of the magical things was it gave me the freedom and the permission to begin delving much more deeply into something that I had just bumped into that really resonates with what you were saying. I had just read the work. So I'm, I'm a depression clinical neuroscientist focusing on major mood disorder, looking at what's happening in the brain when people get clinically depressed and writing for an audience of maybe 50 to 100 other scholars in the world. Those were the people that read what I was publishing. But I had just um, bumped into an anthropological account of the Kaluli people in uh, the highlands of Papua New, New Guinea. And they're modern day Aboriginal people, largely hunter-gatherer. They're a little bit foraging horticulturalists, but essentially hunter-gatherers living very similar lives to those that our ancestors lived. As you said, we're, we're, you know, we're, we're social primates. And most of our ancestors were on this lifelong camping trip with their combat platoon, as it were, with their 50 to 100 closest relatives, dearest friends. Sometimes it'd be 150, but you know, somewhere in that ballpark. Yeah. And Edward Schieffelin, who's an American anthropologist, embedded with the Kaluli people, who number about 2,000 scattered through about a dozen or so different clans. And he was very keen on answering the question, how is it that they lead such incredibly challenging, difficult lives? Just like you were describing with, with our young men in combat. I mean, these are folks without any modern medicine, any modern conveniences with a high rate of parasitic illness, a high rate of infant mortality, a high rate of violent death in combat, not within the group, but between yep. groups. And um, yet what he discovered is when he applied Western DSM diagnostic psychiatric criteria to the Kaluli he could only identify one marginal case of clinical depression out of 2000. Wow. Um, and if you do the math on that, their rate of debilitating clinical depression, which is the leading global cause of disability now on the planet and accounts for the majority of the 1 million deaths due to suicide on the planet, their rate of depression is about one in a hundred. Ours is about hundred X theirs despite the fact that they have so many depressive, depressogenic thing, things that would trigger depression in us don't trigger depression in them. And this had been gnawing at me for a long time. And I was also aware of, of a construct in medical anthropology called diseases. I'm going to use the scare quotes, Brandon. I'm sorry. Yeah, it go probably reads, reads terrible on video. Diseases of civilization. Yeah. So illnesses that are endemic in modern affluent societies largely non-existent among Aboriginal groups. Uh, diseases, uh, for example, like atherosclerosis and type 2 diabetes and obesity and hemorrhoids, who knew? But they, they don't spend a lot of time sitting. Uh, and 
And depression fit the pattern. Yeah. And I said, okay, I'm going to leave my, my, everything I've done in my career to this point um, and set it all behind me and chase down this rabbit hole and this mystery. Why? Because since 1990, we've had a 400% increase in antidepressant use in this country. And it hasn't moved the needle one bit in terms of lowering the societal burden of clinical depression, in terms of lowering suicide, in terms of lowering the extraordinary suffering that we're seeing unfold in millions and millions of lives. And so that's what inspired me to begin thinking about clinical depression, not as a chemical imbalance, which is a good formula for selling drugs, if you're big pharma. Right. And by the way, I'm not, I'm not denigrating, if, if any viewers or listeners are on a medication, I'm not saying that they can never be helpful. They sometimes can. But the fundamental underlying problem with depression goes deeper than so-called neurochemical imbalance. The, and the, the deeper level is we were never designed for this. And when I stumbled across Sebastian Younger's amazing book, Tribe, I couldn't put it down. Um, I was like, this is exactly, it just, in, 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 in every page, I was seeing echoes and resonances of, of my own work and thinking, yes, the problem of post-traumatic stress in our combat veterans is mirroring in so many ways the problem of clinical depression, clinical anxiety in our civilian population. Those are amazing stories, amazing facts. Um, I'm guessing the uh, Kaluli, I think I remember the word to be. That's right, K-A-L-U-L-I, Kaluli. Yeah. I'm guessing that suicide is not a big factor in their in their society, in their life. Absolutely not. Yeah. Absolutely. Now, yeah. I mean, there are people that have killed themselves. I mean, I really shouldn't. I mean, I, I mean, and they're all from very affluent segments of our society. Absolutely. Know? Now, the caveat I'll want to put on that is there have been many Aboriginal groups who've been forcibly transitioned onto right. reservations. And I spoke with Kim Hill, who's a, a, a very well-known anthropologist with the Ache or the Ake people of um, the Amazonian basin. Yep. And they're, they're lovely people, but most of them have, have been forcibly resettled on reservations and no longer have their traditional hunter-gatherer right. way of life. And many of their old warriors have now developed PTSD right. in, in middle age and old age, where now they're reflecting back on their combat histories Right. And they don't have that supportive context and that sense of purpose and belonging. And in that sense of disconnection and emptiness, they are developing post-traumatic stress right. and, and depression. And some do indeed get suicidal. Yeah. Right, right. That makes sense. Terrific. I appreciate you coloring all that in uh, for us, uh, Steve. Uh, always, always brilliant and, and, and focused in your words. Uh, and, and with that, uh, just kind of inching it forward here a little bit, uh, whether it's in the book, uh, Fire, Tribe, War, or Freedom, uh, again, text I'm most familiar with, uh, these books seem to be inspired by the connection and belongingness uh, that you observed, Sebastian, during your on-the-ground accounts among environments of extreme hardship. And I've, I've shared with the viewers out there uh, many times already, and certainly within my you know, company culture, you know, one of my favorite you know, quotes right out of the introduction of your text 
uh, in Tribe that says humans don't mind hardship. In fact, they thrive on it. What they do mind is not feeling necessary. Modern society has perfected the art of making people not feel necessary, and it's time for that to end. And so, you know, moving through these texts and, and your accounts of being in these platoons and these really, um, these environments filled with hardship, there's belongingness within the environments of hardship. And then stories of the troops, you know, going home for leave or whatever the case might be, and then they, they're desiring to come back uh, to the experience of hardship. But if we were sitting down just with anybody, I, or it feels like, I don't wanna be too broad about it, but most people in my experience is they would say, war is something I don't ever wanna be a part of. Yet we have military individuals desiring to get back to the boots on the ground experience versus uh, re-engaging or integrating within you know, our society in you know, whatever way that is uh, in that regard. And so just curious if you can bring the viewers a little bit closer through uh, uh, some examples of those shared experiences of kind of that boots on the ground um, belongingness that you're seeing and that desire to return to something that seems like most of us would never want to be involved with. Yeah. So. One way to think about it is that the way that evolution, quote, got us to, I mean, it doesn't work that way, but the, basically the, the, the reason we have adaptive behaviors is because those behaviors feel good and we do things that make us feel good and the adaptive behaviors that feel good survive as genetic traits and the maladaptive ones don't. So pretty much with human behavior, if something feels good, you can assume it's adaptive sex feels good, is highly adaptive. Without it, you don't pass on your genetics, right? Eating food when you're hungry, ditto. One of the things that feels very, very good is connecting to a small group of people and connecting in a powerful emotional way. And one of the things that feels really, really good is being necessary, being helpful to that group, right? And you can watch the oxytocin levels rise, right? It's like when you hit the target with the bow and arrow, you, you can see the dopamine go up. Like, you know, so clearly the those adaptive behaviors are reinforced neurochemically and most assuredly help with our survival, right? So think about humans, at, we're social primates, right? But we're unbelievably defenseless. Like we don't have claws, we don't have sharp teeth, we can't climb trees very well, we can't run very fast. I, I mean, we're like children in the wilderness, right? Relatively speaking, right? Compared to other uh, apex predators and other mammals. And um, but so what, what we have is our unity, right? We have the fact that we will function deliberately uh, as a, and consciously as a group, right? And that is because humans do not survive by themselves in nature. They die almost immediately, right? Not virtually all of us. I mean, you could drop almost any American off into the Canadian wilderness with a wife, a wife, a knife and a pack of matches. And, a wife. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 he, and, and, and he or she would die. Right. Like, and, and so, but we survive in groups. And so when you, when you look at, situ I mean, the sort of the, the, the pity of modern society and I'm, listen, I'm all for modernity in a lot of ways, right. It's brought amazing things to human consciousness medical advances, I'd be dead if, they, if it were not for modern society, for modern modern medicine. Um, it's Capitalism is, is associated with a lot of good things, uh, including uh, human rights, right? So, so I just want to acknowledge that before moving on uh, to say that the downside of all this uh, technology 
all this uh, mechanization uh, is that we don't need each other for our daily survival. I mean, wherever you live, when you wake up in the morning and look around and the people in the houses around you or the apartments around you, you're not depending on those, specifically those people for your survival, right? They didn't help you build the house you live in. They didn't gather the food you're about to eat. And they're certainly not helping defend you from the enemy should the enemy come, right? That's all been outsourced in a very, very efficient way that depends on a huge supply chain and it's all good. The downside is you don't really need anybody. And just so think about that, I'll, fin I'll finish with this. Think about if you're in a group that needs you, your survival depends on being part of that group. And if it needs you, you can be pretty confident the group isn't gonna get rid of you, right? It'll take care of you because it needs you. You're the guy that knows how to make arrowheads, right? Like, so they're not gonna get rid of you. They need arrowheads, right? If you're not needed on some level, even in modern society, if you realize that society does not need you, if you're not being productive and helpful, in some senses, your safety is now in danger because you, you're, the group doesn't need you. They, you're, you're, you're dead weight, you're right? They're just carrying you. And that makes people very, very anxious and very insecure. And as soon as you give them a situation where they're needed, a platoon in combat, right? Or a disaster, the blitz in London. I mean, the, the, you know, the English got bombed for six months straight every night practically by the German Air Force in World War II, they lost 30,000 civilians, right? I mean, we lost 3,000 people in 9-11, 10 times that number, right? And people buried alive under the rubble, et cetera, et cetera. Awful, everyone's sleeping in the tube stations. But what happened was the common person became necessary to their society. People were helping uh, save the wounded. They were doing everything they could for the war effort, and it was a social leveler, which also feels great, right? After agriculture, a sort of hierarchical economic system started with a few people at the top, most people on the bottom. Um, that's not, hunter-gatherer society is a very egalitarian. And uh, so, so what happens in a disaster is that everybody's, everybody's sort of even, right? Like, I mean, they, they, I looked at a, an earthquake in, in, uh, in Italy in the early part of the 20th century. And this one, it was an earthquake in Avanzano that killed over 90% of the population in a minute, right? They were basically hit by a nuclear weapon, right? And the people that actually survived it had to wait four or five days for help to get to them. And one of the survivors said, it's an amazing quote, I'll finish with this, the disaster gave us what the law promises, but does not in fact deliver, which is the equality of all people. Social class was completely erased for a little while during that disaster. So of course people are nostalgic, soldiers, civilians, anyone who lives through a disaster, even a hurricane in this country, and you're, help, you're helping with a chainsaw clear your neighbor's driveway, like that all feels great. And so that, that kind of uh, communalism can happen even in a modern society, you never know tomorrow morning when you're going to be needed. And when you are, people often look back on those day, terrible, quote, terrible days as the best days of their lives. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think you, you've put your finger, Sebastian, on, on, a, on a really important principle. And, and, and if you're amenable, I'm going to see if I can broaden it yeah. even just a little bit. <laughs> Because I, I don't know that, that as a licensed psychologist, I would want to prescribe for the entire population, hey, right. what you need is to get yourself a lot of trauma, a lot of crisis, a lot of life and death. 
Um, like you, I want to have the best of both worlds. I, I, there's a lot about modernity that I, I, I think is worthy of celebrating and that I'm really fond of. But I think there's a lot that, that we have left behind from the ancestral past, a lot of wisdom, a lot of healing and protective habits that maybe we can reclaim and weave back into the fabric of 21st century life so that maybe in some sort of hybridized way, we can have some of the best of both worlds. And one of the things I think you've got your finger on the pulse of is the broader principle that every single one of us needs to feel like we matter, like we are a part of something bigger than ourselves and that we're deeply connected and that we deeply belong. And the the easiest way to see that unfold, like you said, is in a, a situation like our hunter-gatherer ancestors face, like a combat platoon faces, where it's like, hey, if you are, I mean, I don't, have you all ever been out hiking, like in grizzly territory, where, um, I, I mean, th th this happened to me a few years ago in um, in Yellowstone, and I'm out on a trail, and, and as I'm getting off the trail, I see a sign, I'm, by the way, I'm with my wife, so it's just the two of us, and I see a sign, um, there is a mama grizzly who has adopted two orphan cubs. She has four cubs. She's ridiculously aggressive. Don't go on the trail. <laughs> well, we had been on the trail. And so I started doing some research about, we just got lucky. Um, what is the, 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 the smallest group of humans um, that has never been attacked in, in any sort of you know recorded uh, uh, grizzly attack? And apparently, Grizzlies will not attack, uh, based on the research that I saw, more than a group of more than four humans. So if you're out hiking, they, they just, you know, they're just using this crude heuristic of like, oh, that's a big group of humans. So just adding another warm body to the group makes it safer. Every person gets safer. Well, guess what? Primates, like our closest primate cousins, the, uh, cousins, the chimps, when, when a, a group is plotting an ambush, if they see a certain critical threshold of three, four, five, they're like, ah, let's call it off. It's too dangerous, too risky. There's safety in numbers. And we feel it at such a deep primal level. When survival is on the line, if we are just another warm body that's part of a group, we know at a very primal level we matter. We belong just by virtue of our presence. But yeah. then as Sebastian said, if you're in a small hunter-gatherer group, say you're in a group of 50 you don't even have to worry about contributing just because you belong. It's also going to be the case that you're going to be the best person or among the best at several different things that, that, that the group values. You're going to be among the best at finding a fresh source of water, among the best at, you know, weaving the roof of a temporary shelter or, you know, whatever. I mean, hundreds and hundreds of different skills and things that people would need in a small group. And so everybody gets to be valued. Well, the dilemma of 21st century life in the affluent West is no matter how good you are at anything, there's always going to be somebody better, right? Even if you're in the in the 1% or the one-tenth of 1%, there's always somebody better, no matter what it is that you're great at, unless you're LeBron James. And even there, <laughs> LeBron's 38 now, you know, uh, and, and, you know, no, no offense, Brendan, but sometimes when people get to be 38, you know, they're, they're <laughs> <laughs> or sometimes when they're 59. Um, but um, the, the point is that what we see in the modern world 
is you don't have to be in a combat platoon to feel like you belong necessarily. Um, many of us get that feeling from participating in something that is meaningful and valued. I just walked out of a classroom of 270 students an hour ago. And we were all in this conversation together and we're studying psychological disorders and they're in it and they're doing the readings and they're supporting each other. And, you know, and we're part of our own little tribe. Um, and as ephemeral as that is, as temporary as that is, it matters. And, um, and, and many of us are lucky enough to find that in 101 different ways, different places in our lives where we know that we matter but one out of every four Americans has none of it. Right. One out of every four Americans will tell you they don't have anybody that, that counts on them. They don't have any role. And we see these deaths of despair, especially for working class men, where you know they feel like nobody, they have no status, they have or minimal status, nobody values what they do. They're not earning enough, they feel like, to really necessarily support a family, um, right? And And so we see, a hundred thousand overdose deaths last year in the U.S. Fifty thousand suicide deaths, um, and disproportionately concentrated among people. Back to Sebastian's point, who feel like they don't really matter, they don't really count, um, and those are the folks that we're just we're, we're we're leaving behind. And I think we could do better. Absolutely, yeah. Thank you for coloring uh, that that in as well, too, uh, Steve. And uh, it brings us right to the cliff edge of, the, of this transitionary moment for the questions for uh, Sebastian. So very much appreciated. But you know, given your experiences, Sebastian, and observation of how a combat platoon provides soldiers with extraordinary feelings of belongingness, despite what looks like quite a bit of diversity on the surface, you know, for example, different cultural backgrounds. Uh, they, you know, the soldiers come from different geographies, political ideologies, and so forth. Um, but they have a shared mission ethos and so forth. Um, what do you see are the lessons um, that you would like for Americans to draw from that? And what are the, the principles that might be generalizable to the broader society, you know, civilians, um, you know, those struggling with mental health addiction, you know, kind of on where, where we're working from here at Peaks, uh, workforces and so forth. Uh, and how can we in a day-to-day -day life work to promote such bonds of connectedness um, in a way that um, is unfamiliar to us because we don't have access to that, you know, uh, that platoon type environment of those communal type events. So I know there are three questions buried in there, but um, uh, ho hopefully uh, you can set us on the right direction here. Yeah, so, I mean, it is tricky. I mean, we've been having a conversation that's basically been sort of diagnosing a problem by referencing our evolutionary past. We used to live like this. Now we like live like this. One in four people are depressed it's probably because they need a sense of coherence that comes from adversity. But as we agree, we don't, we, you know, we want, we, we don't want, we don't want to subject ourselves to, to adversity simply to feel like we belong to something. Right. I mean, that's like, that, that doesn't make sense. So how do we, how do we have the best of both worlds? How do we feel? Uh, how do we have the, the buffering effect of inclusion, the buffering effect against sort of psychological struggles of inclusion of, of being part included as part of a group, without the adversity that, that requires group participation, mm -hmm. right? And so, so in a way you have to sort of trick evolution. You have to sort of like, make, you have to trick our, 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 our wiring. Like let's, we're gonna try to live as if, as if we are desperately needed by this group, even though thank God we're not, 
Right. Thank God we live in safer, easier circumstances. But how can we make it feel like we're, 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 we're intensely needed? Because if we do, then we'll feel intensely good. So that's the, that's a, that's a, it's a lot to ask, but I think it can be done. I mean, I think sports teams go a long way towards creating that feeling of solidarity and participation. And look, it doesn't matter who scored the goal. We scored the goal and we beat that team, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, that, that is a great feeling. They've done studies where women, young women in college who participate in, uh, in team sports go on to do better in life in all kinds of ways, particularly economically, right? So, so I think sports is good. I'm an atheist, but I understand that church is an amazing sort of communal event that I think taps into a lot of those behaviors. Uh, in my opinion, as an atheist, unfortunately, it also can come with a lot of sort of shame-based, like ideological um, teachings that make people feel bad about very human choices and very human desires. So I, you know, just, uh, you know, just, just for the record, like mm-hmm. I think for me as an atheist, there's a downside to some of the church church teachings, but what's, and I've been to church and, and, you know, you can go to church and not believe in God and have a very good time there. Right. I mean, I was at a, at a sort of black neighborhood church in, 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 in Baltimore with just an incredible band. I mean, incredible musicians and singing and the, the neighborhood feeling, I mean, the sort of community feeling the very poor neighborhood and the feeling I had in that room was like, Oh my God, if I lived in Baltimore, I'd be here every, every Sunday morning. Right. I mean, it was just like a drug. It was amazing. Right. So so there are those things. Um, and but I would and, you know, there's the workplace. Right. I mean, the workplace is a community. And one of the problems with the workplace is that it can be hierarchical in some sort of nasty ways. And so when sometimes corporations bring me in to talk about how do we make the you know X corporation feel like a tribe? Because everyone knows if you feel like a tribe, you're going to fight harder. And you're going to do better and you beat the other tribe. And that's what it's all about, which I, you know, I, I get it. You know, that's the game. Right. So. And so, you know, what I say to them is, OK, there's a few things that would really help. And I, so I, in my book, Freedom, I looked at underdog groups that were able to overcome a superior enemy and a numerically superior, or technologically superior enemy. The Ukrainians are doing that now. With the Russians, the Montenegrins did it against the Ottoman Empire. The Irish did it against the British after the Easter Rising in 1916. The American labor movement really did it in the 1920s and on uh, uh, against the government and corporate interests in the National Guard. Like it can be. So I looked at the common elements, and so those common elements, of course, go to a very strong sense of tribal identity, and um, they are. You need leaders who are willing to die. Right. And in the sense of a modern corporation, you need leaders who are willing to take a hit, make a sacrifice for the good of the of, of the company. So when you have corporations where the, the top dogs are getting, you know, multi-million dollar year end year end bonuses while laying people off because there's a downturn, I get it. Like that's business. Go for it. But don't don't imagine you're going to create a sense of tribe there. You're not you're not leading a company, you're running one. Right. which is a way to go through life. I get it. It's not for me, but like that's that. First of all, you need leaders that are willing to be self-sacrificing. And then you need uh, sort of peer accountability. Like the soldiers, one of the reasons they cleaned their weapons all the time was because their peers would say, Hey man, clean your weapon. Like if we get, if we get overrun and your gun jams, I'm dead. Like clean that thing. Right. So peer pressure for, for, for high performance is very, very is much more effective than top-down disciplinary pressure, right? 
Um, and in the case of many of the small groups that have outfought larger, for, larger forces, the involvement of women is really, really crucial uh, in the labor movement. Um, I mean, for many, many reasons, but like in the labor movement in this country, what they figured out is, is if they put women on the front lines of the, of the protests, the National Guard didn't know what to do. They were not willing to hurt women, right? And it completely confused the sort of power structure. Mm -hmm. uh, and and uh, this one in, in, in Lawrence, Massachusetts in 1912, this one frustrated police chief said, uh, he said, one, one good cop can handle 10 men, but it takes 10 cops to handle one woman. And women create a sense of moral legitimacy to a movement as well. And so, so you know, what I would just say is that if you involve yourself in group in groups that have those components, you're probably doing pretty well. And finally, and I, I will, I promise, end with this. I've been asked many times, how do you feel like you're big part of the biggest group, which is the United States? You're an American citizen. How do you feel? It's almost 400 million people. How do you feel? What do you have to do in your life to feel necessary? To feel um, uh, to feel admired, to feel um, like you have a role, to your contribution is to the wealthiest, most powerful country in the world. And there's 400 million. Like, what do you, what can you do to feel, you have that feeling of, oh, I belong to this, right? And these are symbolic steps, but symbolism is quite powerful and don't knock it. So I would say there's three things you can do. You must vote. You have to vote, right? The nation needs you to vote. Like it needs soldiers in war, it needs voters in peacetime and in war. Like we will not survive without people voting. It's one thing you can do that makes you part of this whole and you are needed, right? Um, machines can't vote, computers can't vote, only humans can vote, right? Jury duty, it's the only thing keeping us from tyranny, right? I mean, one person cannot decide the fate of another person in a system with jury duty, like no small town sheriff, no president, no union boss, Nobody can decide someone else's fate. Robots can't do it. Computers can't do it. You need humans in jury duty, right? And you are part of the fabric of society. And God forbid, if you're charged with something you didn't do, you will want a jury duty. You don't deserve something you yourself are not willing to do for others. So um, serve jury duty. And finally, uh, donate blood. Robots can't do it. Computers can't do it. The scientists can't create blood. Only humans can create blood and it's free. Like within a week, you have all the blood you gave, you have back in you and someone's, someone in the ER is gonna survive because you gave blood. It makes you part of the human race and part of this nation. And without it, God forbid, there'd be terrible, terrible loss and suffering in this country. My life was saved by two years ago. I almost died of a kind of freak medical occurrence I had an aneurysm that ruptured in my abdomen, a very freak thing, random, like, and I bled out into my abdomen and uh, I was saved by 10 units of blood donated by 10 people that I'll never know who they are. And now I give blood as much as I can, as much as they'll let me, right? And it's so, it feels so good. You're part of something. So sorry about the long sermon, no. but, but, it, but it's, you know, it's important stuff and it's complicated and it's hard to do. It's not easy and obvious. It's hard. Yeah. No, I, I, I appreciate it. And I want to I want to get Steve's uh, side of this real quick. But it, it you know, it's one of the bullet points that, you know, we've talked about part of the episode, it feels easy to take a global view and say something like, well, interdependence is essential because we only have one planet, a shared environment, etc. And out of that, we ought to come together. However, 
it feels like most Americans, you know, cannot, you know, fortunately, unfortunately, relate to the global view, right? We're 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 hardworking. We're we're moving fast and quickly. We're not, you know, generally engaged in kind of a communal sense. So who has time for the lofty goals here? And you know, so the question becomes then, how do we act locally, and how can we be of service in a way that doesn't obviously bring about, you know, bring me anything other than a sense of purpose and belonging? And how useful, you know, useful can I be today? And um, and I. And I think you're spot on there, you know, at least with those particular three examples. Those are three extraordinarily important ways, though we are separated as a community, that we can contribute individually toward the community um, with a sense of, you know, sort of purpose. Like when I drop off the ballot, you know, for example, in the mailbox and send it off, that feels really good, like a sense of purpose. Like I said something, I cast my vision with other Americans in line doing the same sort of thing. And giving blood is another distant but connected way of giving back to the community um, in a very selfless action as well too that visibly in front of us today saves lives uh, in that regard. And so, you know, we're, we're going from this kind of global view, these, these well-written text, text into something where we can actually uh, locally produce it and find that meaning and belongingness in a really important way. And so I think the tangent there was important, uh, Sebastian, because uh, the answers are not always imminently obvious, but at the same time, I think we can access them. And it's conversations like this that can be of service to those who might be floundering a little bit in the process of discovery for community and connection. Um, so uh, Steve, if you want to add anything to this at this time. Yeah, I'd love to weigh in with just one more extension maybe, because um, I've always got that clinical hat on. Mm -hmm. And as Sebastian was talking, the, 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 the research study that popped into my head, and I'll bet you have both heard of it, it's called the Harvard Study of Adult De Development, sometimes called the Harvard Happiness Study. And it was launched 80 years ago by researchers at Harvard who recruited three cohorts of undergraduates and then matched community controls in Cambridge and began from age 18, 19, 20, tracking them, bringing them back every few years to look at their psychological development, their, their life outcomes, their health. They, they eventually started doing all kinds of um, biometrics and brain scans and yada yada. But toward the end of these uh, uh, men and women's lives, so they tracked them all the way into their 80s and 90s. And now I think there are maybe four original participants in, in, that are centenarians. Um, they started focusing a lot more in late life on overall quality of um, well-being and happiness and life satisfaction. And one of the headline findings that um, really warmed my heart was that ultimately, as people enter into the latter stages of their careers um, or raising kids and, and beyond, what predicted their level of, of satisfaction and happiness was not their achievement not how far they made it in their careers, not how famous they became. And several participants did become, you know, somewhat famous, uh, not as famous as Sebastian, but, you know, pretty, pretty famous. <laughs> and, and uh, they, you know, they, they didn't write the perfect storm, but, but um, they, they did really well. And what predicted their happiness was, was far and away the single biggest variable was their social ties but I want to be really careful here because we have to, I think, disentangle. When we think about social ties or social support to disentangle connection 
which often has to do with our most emotionally intimate, meaningful friendships and relationships with family, spouses, children, uh, siblings, parents, and so forth, and belonging to a tribe, belonging to a group. So connection versus belonging. And what I loved about Sebastian's work is he put a spotlight on belonging that had never been there, in, in my opinion, in our culture, that was so necessary. But I don't want us to lose sight of the fact that connection, in many ways, has these very primal echoes back to our hunter-gatherer days. If you think of a combat platoon, right, which kind of, in some ways, approximates uh, a hunter-gatherer band, you've got, whatever, 30, 50, 100 individuals, but it's comprised of smaller little family-like units, yeah. right? Um, uh, squads. 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 Yeah. And um, and th that's where you're talking about bands of brothers, where, you know, literally people will lay down their lives for one another often um, without flinching. These are, these are my brothers um, in the way that hopefully we would all think there are people in my life I would lay down my life for without even, like, no questions asked, wouldn't even think twice about it. Um, and what we find is that that level of emotional connection and intimacy is extraordinarily protective against the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. So when a medical crisis hits, you know, like Sebastian goes through this, this, this freakish tragic aneurysm, um, and then makes this remarkable full recovery. Um, when we have, when we're blindsided by failure and, and loss and setback, it's those intimate connections that are even more protective than belonging to the tribe. Now that they both matter for, for sure. Um, but I feel like for many Americans, even if they fail to find their sense of their people in say a church group or um, you know, they're lucky enough to be part of some sort of a sports team or some other team or they're, I mean, I, I worked for a while on a, on a medical unit at Duke Med Center and there was a, a really strong sense of tribe among the yeah. providers on this unit. Like we were just, we were all in and it was, it felt like it was literally life and death, you know, not for us, but for the people we were caring for. Um, it was extraordinary. The, the, the bonds that form there. But but I just want to put on the viewers and the listeners' radar the idea that when we are meaningfully embedded in the lives of our very closest friends and family, that it has a primal echo. It's We're not literally involved in a life or death sort of, you know, our, our, in other words, our presence doesn't literally matter for their survival, their life or death. But emotionally, it still feels like it does, because for hundreds of thousands of years, it did. Does that make sense? Yep. In other words, emotionally, there's a vestigial echo of the life or death stakes. We feel like those connections are a matter of life and death. Emotionally, they are. Psychologically, they are. But they're literally not so much anymore, although our brain still thinks they are. How about that? Yep. Um, and, and so I, I just really don't want us to lose sight of the fact that even if we haven't found our people yet, um, you know, that bigger tribe, we can still get so much of the psychological benefit from our squadron, as it were. And I think we should all be looking to find who is, you know, who's in our squad. 
uh, if we don't have one. I think one, I'd love that. I think one way to phrase the question and figure out who's in your squad is to sort of ask yourself, if there were a crisis, who are I, who do I think would stick with me? Right. Who would 100%. I, with? right. And uh, I mean, uh, one of the interesting statistics that came out of nine 11 was, well, first of all, that um, Vietnam veterans who had PTSD said that their symptoms declined after 9-11 in New York, in New York City. Yes. Vietnam vets in the New York area said their symptoms declined after 9-11. You'd think it would trigger that, right? It was the opposite. Yeah. There was a feeling of, oh, my God, we're needed. Like, it's, it's, yes. right, it's game time. What are we going to do, right? That wasn't the last attack. There's a, another one's coming, you know, whatever. So, but the other interesting statistic was that the um, a lot of people got divorced after mm. 9-11. And I think it was yeah. a realization, wow, there was a crisis. And I just figured out that my wife or my husband actually isn't in my squad. Like, <laughs> yes. Like, I just found Brilliant. out knew, right? Like it took, yeah. it took the crisis. I, and I, 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 just, I also want, want to add that, that one of the guys in the platoon, I mean, so in the platoon, there were there was about 40 guys, 50 guys, something like that. Uh, there were three platoons in the company in the Cornwall Valley, so around 150, maybe pushing 200 men. And so, so the feelings among the guys was, you know, we would risk our lives for definitely our squad, right? We would die for our squad, for anyone in the platoon, and really extending into the company because they basically mm-hmm. want a group that you could know all the names of everybody, even if you didn't know them well or even like them particularly. They were sort of in the group. Right. Yeah. On the company, once you got to the battalion level, uh, like and once you got to the brigade level, thirty five hundred people, you know, if something bad happened to the brigade, like they lost their aerial surveillance blimp to a in a hurricane in a in a thunderstorm to lightning, and everyone in the platoon thought it was hilarious. Right. I mean, like, <laughs> oh my god, brigade lost their blimp. <laughs> right. So one of the guys said to me, We were on an ambush and it was a lot of time to kill because we were waiting for the enemy that never showed up. And and uh and we were chatting. He said, you know, it's funny. There's, there's guys in the platoon who straight up hate each other, but we would all die for each other. Yeah, I love so that, that. That's belonging, right? Belonging doesn't require love, right? I mean, it doesn't right. require individual love. The other thing that would happen is that there were guys who were like really brothers in the platoon, right? I mean, like they really were really, really, really close. So both of those components combined to make a very strong, healthy sort of human fabric in the platoon. And then imagine those guys suddenly going home and they're not in the middle of any matrix whatsoever. Certainly not in the middle of a matrix of anyone who would die for them. Imagine how scary that that is. Absolutely. Yeah. The contrast there. So I'm going to return to that Harvard study, um, uh, happiness study, because I'm going to tell you that the best predictive variable for happiness for people was one particular question, at least I, and I hope I'm not misrepresenting the study, but my understanding is there was one question, which was, and I'm paraphrasing, and you can both think about answering this for yourself and I'll do the same. How many people, and give me a list, you don't have to give me your list, but they asked for the list, list the, the, the people who you could call at three in the morning in a medical crisis or some other crisis, three in the morning, and they would drop anything without thinking. They are there for you, no questions asked, three in the morning, um, which is kind of echoing nicely, I think, Sebastian, some of what you're saying, right? So in other words, now when it might be 
a matter of life and death at great personal sacrifice and inconvenience. You're going to give up your night's sleep. You're going to drop everything. You're just going to show up, take that person to the ER, be with them. God only knows what you're stepping into when you get that three in the morning call. And we've all had it. Right. And we counted a privilege. Um, there were many people in the study who said, I have nobody. You know, I have friends. I'm not, there were people who couldn't even list their spouse. Wow. Again, to your point. Yeah. There are people who went through COVID and learned like, Hey, I can't count on my spouse to be that person for me. Um, Just like they went through nine 11 and learned there, you know, there are those of us who are lucky enough, you know, we're going to run out of fingers and hands when we think about how, how blessed we are with the different people in our lives that, you know, um, or we think about the number of people that we would drop everything for yeah. Yeah. if it came to it. Um, but that, I, I don't know. I think it, it speaks both to the fact that we can differentiate between connection and belonging a bit, but at a certain point, quantity has a quality all its own. In yeah. other words, if we have a big enough group, then all of a sudden we do have not just connection, but we do have our people. You know. Yeah. And what's interesting about modern society is that for most of human history, the people that would go on your lists would probably live in pretty close proximity to you. Yes. Right? yes. All of a sudden, now modern society, you have that list. I have that list. While you were speaking, I racked up about eight or nine people, you know, not including yeah. my immediate family. But uh, and um, but they're not part of my daily experience. They don't live in my neighborhood. I mean, they would yeah. get in the car and drive 400 miles to get here, right? They're not part of my life, right? The right. bonds are there. But so imagine if you go through your life with that group of people, like not only do you have that group, but you see them every day. Like yes. imagine, imagine what that's like. Like, of course, you're not depressed. <laughs> you know what I mean? Of course. Yeah. Right. Of course, that's human. That's that's human existence until like yesterday. Exactly right. Yeah, no, that, that's that's a really lovely point. Um, and it, it takes me back to um, an incredible experience of community that I had in college where we, there was just a group of us, you know, sort of, it sounds ridiculous to say it, but it was a little bit like the TV show Friends, where yeah. it was a group of about 10 of us, uh, men and women, that were just extremely close. We just loved each other, would hang out all the time, had this sort of community and we're still 40 years later in really, really close touch, but nobody lives anywhere near anybody else. And now we, you know, we're, we're in, we're in contact all the time. And it, it echoes back to this time when we did all share the same physical space. Yeah. yeah. And it's still very nourishing in that way, but it's sort of nourishing in this way of, of echoing back to the in-person reality. And then of course, you know, we'll get together and have a little reunion every now and again, but, but um, yeah, I, I think you're really onto something important. We need to have people that are part of our day-to-day face-to-face as the kids would say, IRL, you know, in real life um, <laughs> experience as well as maybe some of those lifelong bonds of folks that are halfway across the planet now. The ga- gamers call um, the world that we all live in, uh, that they don't actually, but they, everyone, the rest of us live in, they call it the meat world. M-M-E-A. Oh, I love it. Meat I love world. it. Yeah. So, so, you do need some meat world, right? Like, And the thing is, you met your friends in college where 
you know, b because you're in college together, you were put physically into a kind of tribal setting, right? Like they, yes. I mean, you were seeing each other in the mornings, you know, the evening, you know, whatever, like you were- it, At it, the dining hall. Yeah, exactly. You know, yeah. Right, and facing a, you know, a sort of uh, similar and sometimes shared struggle of academic stress and, you know, whatever. So they don't, but, you know, just, but there it is again, like you, you can't quite get there without something that at least vaguely replicates our evolutionary past in terms of being in the meat world with each other on a daily basis. And that's the, Absolutely. the problem with our neighborhoods and our communities and et cetera. I mean, I grew up in a pretty affluent suburb and spiritually speaking, um, it was death on wheels for me. I mean, I just like, no one knew each other. No one needed each other. Like, I live in a mixed income neighborhood in New York City where people do need each other and know each other. And, you know, there's a lot of unpleasantness of a sort of um, unimportant story in, in the neighborhood. But there is connection. Like, I mean, for me, that's gold because of where I grew up. It's gold. Right. I don't care about the junkies and the garbage. Like, I, I'll deal with that as long as I feel like I'm part of something. And I do. And. You know, I'm here with my family. You know, it's it's me. I have two little girls and my wife, and and you know we're you know really as happy as can be. Yeah, yeah I love that. And I, you know, I, I'm now I'm really pondering. I, I, Brandon, is it okay if I jump back in one more time? Yeah, go for it. Well, I'm just pondering. Um, you you both probably know the book uh, by Robert Putnam, the great sociologist, Bowling Alone. Yeah, Bowling Alone. How you know the decline of civic connections that people you know they used to find a little bit of a tribe experience in a bowling league or in the kiwanis club or in the you know, key club or whatever and parallel with the decline of those kind of civic organizations has been a decline in church attendance and membership although americans are still by uh, western affluent nation standards by an order of magnitude more religious than any other civilization and still something like 40% or so of Americans have a strong uh, church or uh, house of worship identity. Okay, my point. Well, I was brought up in a very devout family. And I had the experience in high school of attending a largely black church. Um, and it was brilliant for all the reasons. The music was just, you know, otherworldly in a, in a phenomenal way. And I learned a lot of what I know musically in that setting. But eventually, um, I got to the point where I wasn't really sure exactly what I believe, um, if I believe. Um, I'm a very hopeful person, ontologically, existentially. So I think there's something. I don't know what to label it or name it. and I don't think it necessarily matters. But my wife and I eventually migrated to a religious community that's very open and non-judgmental. And, you know, in other words where you can kind of have the best of like, oh, there's connection and community without having to sign your name on the dotted line for any kind of, you know, harsh, strict dogma. And I'm not judging those who are, you know, in a more dogmatic setting, but it wouldn't work for us. But I was just thinking about Sebastian in my meat, meat world. Is that what, can I call it that? The, the meat world. It sounds a little risque, but I'm going to go, go for it. In the, in the meat world in IRL. Um, my wife and I have a circle of friends here in Lawrence, Kansas that we meet with in a sort of a book club setting, but they're all from this little Episcopal church. And we meet with them once a week and it's like 10 people again. 
And it's a beautiful, beautiful thing that we we all have this sort of shared background that once upon a time we were all in a very devout kind of setting and we've kind of wandered off. Does this make any sense at all? Yep, in other following. words, it's like a it's a way of like all of us miss that sense of belonging and community. And so we're like, can I swear on can I cuss on here? Brandon? Go for it. Is that okay? Yes. We're like, fuck it. Fuck it. <laughs> we're going to stay a part of, we're going to keep the best parts of this yeah. without any of the dogma or the judgment or anything else. But with, by the way, something that I value, and I think both of you do too, just from getting to know you both a little bit, the sense of life has something about it. Existence has something about it that's kind of mysterious and kind of magical. Like there's a sense of wonder yeah. about existence even if we don't want to label it anything even if you know we say we're an atheist or an agnostic there's something magical about it and joining with a group of people to celebrate that kind of magic of existence i think there's something very uplifting about that and something that people can come together over that's my story anyway, and I'm sticking with it. No, yeah, I, I love it. And, <laughs> and, I, and I think it's a good, great segue into one of our you know, uh, questions for Sebastian while we have him uh, here with us today is that, you know, Sebastian, you shared with The Guardian that, uh, you, you know, and uh, just a little bit uh, backwards, uh, that uh, you nearly died in the summer of 2020 uh, due to having an undiagnosed aneurysm in the pancreatic artery, uh, asymptomatic, uh, not related to anything. It's just a structural, you know, congenial thing and you had no way of knowing about it. Uh, and then out of the blue, just like we're talking right now, you know, it, it ruptured and you lost nearly 90% of your blood. And given your experiences on the front lines of war, um, how has this experience, and to you know, Steve's point as well too, um, how is this experience different given that you know, both experiences brought death front and center for you, uh, but from here, um, uh, just curious, you, you, have, you have death coming you know, in both different directions uh, in this regard, but how do you see those differences playing out, you know, being faced with death imminently on two fronts? And then to echo what Steve's talking about, how can you bring us closer to you know, maybe that mysteriousness that comes up um, in that regard and, and the magic to life being faced with that imminent uh, sort of death? Yeah. Well, I yeah, so I was a combat reporter for a while and and suffered some consequences. I mean, I you know I had a certain amount of trauma that would follow me home and would sort of rattle me a bit, and I was anxious, depressed, quick to anger sometimes, which was new for me. Um, I didn't know it had to do with combat. Uh, PTSD wasn't a term that was being used very much, so you know I just thought in my late thirties, I uh, I just thought I was going crazy. Like I, mean, I had no idea that, you know, I would panic when I was in a small space, like on the subway. I had no idea it had to do with combat in Afghanistan. And, you know, I was in Afghanistan in 2000, the year before 9-11. I was in a lot of, like, pretty heavy combat. I had no idea, like, that it was, my panic in New York was connected to that. How could I? There were no subways in New York, you know. So so I had I had problems with it. But they, 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 they I didn't deal with it. I mean, I didn't see a shrink or anything. I mean, just, like, they went away. Like, over the course of a year or so, I normalized, I reset, and I was fine. Um, what happened with my aneurysm was way more traumatic than combat, right? I mean, seeing civilian casualties, that doesn't go away. That stays in your head for a long time. It's extremely upsetting. But in terms of danger to yourself, 
right, the, the mortality issue. The, the risks that you run in combat are, for me, I mean, we're, we're, we're transitory, right? I mean, the effects were very, very transitory. No problem, right? When I had my aneurysm, which ruptured, boom, like that, like I was talking to my wife and I felt the pain in my, in my abdomen. And the, a minute later, I couldn't stand because my blood pressure was dropping and they got me to the hospital. My blood pressure was 60 over 40 and I was on the way out the door, right? And that was terrifying. I mean, that, that I'm still struggling with the consequences of that. I, I, I was, uh, I had a very intense anxiety, panic disorder after that. Like, and it was because it was the randomness of it. It was just like you, people do quite well with danger if they feel they have agency. And when you're in combat, you have some agency, right? Well, including not going to combat, right? If, if you're if you rupture your pancreatic artery artery randomly because of a sort of genetic quirk in your abdomen, like you have zero agency, right? And and so that was terrifying. That was absolutely terrifying. And people will accept a a higher level of risk with agency than a lower level of risk without agency. That's why people are are scared of fly, flying airplanes and they're fine with driving, right? So so I really really struggled with that, but it did bring into focus this sort of. You know, if it's true that you never know, no matter how healthy you are, you never know if you're going to live till sunset. I mean, that's existentially true, right? There was a lady in Canada and British Columbia who woke up at, at 25 minutes to midnight from a loud crash in her, in her house. She turned on the light and a meteorite the size of a large man's fist was sitting next to her head on the floral print pillow and had it hit her forehead and it killed her. Right, that thing had been zipping around the universe for billions of years, right? right. And it, it missed her head by inches, right? That's some random shit right there, right? You have zero agency. And, and that's the kind of thing that humans, that people have a very, very hard time re reconciling with their, with the, with the, their sense, their identity, their sense of themselves in life. Like I'm, I'm, I'm steering my ship here. Like I can, I have some control over my fate. When you find out that you actually, in some senses, have no control over what happens to you, it's absolutely terrifying. And I have young children. I'm 61, but I have an almost 60-year-old and a three-year-old. And now I'm, I'm living for other people. I'm not living for myself. I'm, I belong to them, right? And what happens to me is going to happen to them in a way. And the idea that I almost died and left my girls and my wife was so upsetting. Like, I'm still recovering from that idea. It, it was absolutely devastating. And so, I, you know, I, I, but what I came out of it with is if you never know what... Ultimately, all you, and this is so trite, this is so cliche, I can't even believe I'm saying it, but ultimately, you all you know that you will have for sure, all you know for sure that you will have is right now. The past is already lost to you, and you have absolutely no guarantee that there's a future, right? But you do have now. So maybe don't scroll through your social media feed the whole damn day. You know what I mean? Like, maybe, maybe sit there and look around and be amazed at the world. You know, like, maybe, like... I mean, if, if you really think about how insane it is that we get to exist and have consciousness, like we're made out of dust, we're made out of minerals, right? We're made like we're made out of stuff. We're made, like, and we can think the dust that we're made of can think about itself. Are you kidding? Like, that's what the universe produced. That's completely hallucinatory. That's crazy, right? Like, and here we are. And if you can just plug into the amazement of that, then you are actually experiencing life. And the miracle of life, and I mean that in the non-Christian sense, I mean in like the mathematical sense, the miracle that conscious life exists in the universe, uh, 
you're experiencing that in the moment. And that, that to me, you know, like I said, I'm not religious, but we all yearn for something like religion, right? As, and I do too. And what I got from my aneurysm, from my near death, was that awareness. Like, that's my religion right now. It's like, it's a freaking miracle. And here I am. And like, don't forget it for a moment. Love so it. Sebastian, I was I was just reading um, meditations of Marcus Aurelius. I was just going to say Stoicism meditate, yeah. but you take it, I, Steve. Well, <laughs> is that okay? Yeah, yeah I, totally. I, just, I love it. But I, I mean, what Sebastian just said really could have come right out of those pages yeah. because you know what the ancient Stoics realized was exactly that point that the past is just a memory. The future is just a, a promissory note and, and one that may, may never be paid. We, we don't know that we, we don't own it. We're just right here right now. And we have to be fully awake to the miracle of being right here right now. However it happened, whatever the explanation is, we don't know and we'll never know. But we are here and we have this incredible gift. Um, and so Marcus was advising me as I'm reading it. And he died at a younger age than Sebastian and I are just a little younger, mm -hmm. but he said, look, um, you, you don't know how long you have, but you know that you're going to die someday, you know, it's going to happen and you will cease to exist and you will turn into food for worms. You will be dust. So you might as well face it head on, stare into the abyss and take a little look into the abyss every day just to get a little bit more focused on the fact that today is what you have. And just, you know, to be able to savor, to, you know, um, like, like you just said, to not be scrolling through your, your timeline one more time on Twitter or, you know, whatever social media, to not be just mindlessly sleepwalking through the day, um, grumbling about traffic or grumbling about the neighbors or, you know, whatever. Um, Marcus added a little wrinkle in the passage that I read last week. That my, so my my father, um, who I'm, I love and we're very close, he had a, a scare. He's he turns eighty next month, and he had a, a little mini stroke. And he's thank God, you know, they gave him the clot busters and got it uh, dissolved very quickly, and and cognitively he's fine, and he's making a full recovery but one hell of a scare. And Marcus says, hey, um, not only could you die at any moment, but there's no guarantee, even if you live to a ripe old age, that you're still gonna have your wits about you when you get there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> He's yeah. like, you might live to 90, but you may no longer have your fastball, Yeah, you know, um, in five years or two years or, you know, yeah. whatever. So. Be all in right now, right here, right now. And I, I, I mean, a lot of people don't want to hear that. And a lot of cl clinicians like myself are really afraid to say this stuff out loud, to say, no, you need to look into the abyss. Not too long, but just long enough to get that sense of perspective. Um, and I, I do think there's some real wisdom there in the Stoics. And um, I'm, I'm glad to hear it coming from someone. I mean, Sebastian, you just looked into the abyss, man, two yeah. years ago. That's um, and you, you wrote at one point about feeling your father's presence. Oh, I had the craziest experience. I like, so I was down, 
I mean, I was 60 over 40 and I would have been, I was going to be dead in minutes. The doctor said another five, 10 minutes, like you would be dead. And I, I, it took them an hour and a half to get me to the ER. So I got there and went off a cliff. I went into hemorrhagic shock and they cut my neck. They cut my neck open to put a line into my jugular. And, um, and as they were fumbling around with my neck, uh, a big black pit opened up underneath me. I was getting pulled into it. I had no idea I was dying. I, I, I was definitely dying. I had no idea. But I had the sense that if I went into the pit, I wasn't coming back out. And I didn't want to go into the pit. Like, who would? Right. And I was and, and I was like, no, 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 no. I, you know, I could feel myself getting pulled in. It was below and to the left of me. And and then I, my, I, I, I saw or felt the presence of my dead father above me. And I was really shocked to see him. I was like, sort of like, Dad, what are you doing here? Right. And again, I had no idea. Wow. I was dead, right. And he'd been he's been you know, he'd been dead 10 years and I loved him. And, you know, and he he he's. He sort of, op- I mean, it wasn't quite a vision. It was a sense. A sen- it was a sensation that he was there. He sort of opened his arms. I mean, I have a vision of him floating there, but um, no one else could see him, obviously. And he, he opened his arms and, and he said, it's okay. You're going to be okay. You can come with me. Like, I'll take care of you. It's okay. You know, don't, wow. don't, fight, it. don't fight it. You'll be, you're going to be okay. Come with me. I was like, come with you. You're dead. I'm not going with you. I mean, like, what are you talking about? <laughs> and and I said to the doctor, because I'm still co- conversant now, right? I'm still a conscious. I said to the doctor, you got to hurry. You're losing me right now. I'm going, right? So then it took them hours to, to find the bleed and embolize it by catheter. And um, it was a hellish, a hellish hours because I wasn't on any painkillers. And I was in absolute agony. My kidneys were failing. They had a catheter in my groin, like, rolling around through my venous system, looking for the leak. Uh, I got radiation burns from the fluoroscope because I was on it for six straight hours. I mean, it was absolutely uh-huh. brutal, right? And um, and then I woke up in the ICU the next day and this nurse came in, this sort of tough older nurse came in and and said, I, you know, said, well, I was younger. Like she was sort of Boston accent. This is in Massachusetts. Like, you almost died yesterday. In fact, no one can really believe you're alive. It's actually kind of a miracle that you made it. And uh, I was like, almost died? Are you kidding? Like, I had no, I had no idea. I mean, none. And wow. And I was deeply shocked. And then she, then she left, and I sat there with thinking about it, and and I was just terrified, right? I mean, it was it was very very scary news to get, right? The scariest thing that's ever happened to me. And. She came back an hour later, making a round. She said, "How are you doing?" And I said, "I'm, I'm, uh, I'm okay, but uh, I'm actually really un, unnerved by what you told me. It's terrifying that I almost died." And she said, "You know what? Instead of thinking about it like something scary, try thinking about it like something sacred." And that changed it all for me. And I've been trying to do that ever since. Like, what is the sacred knowledge I came away from that place? With, that place of sort of darkness, mm. fear, and infinity, where my father appeared. Like, what, 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 what information am, am I coming back with that would be helpful to me, helpful to other people? And that's my, you know, I'm writing a book called Pulse about what happened to me, and and trying to make sense of it in rational terms. You know, I I can't explain the fact that my father was there and I didn't know I was dying, and it's a very very common thing with people that almost die and come back, like the dead show up. And I, I can't explain it. Like, I, I don't know. Um, uh, um, I don't know what to say about that. I'm trying to figure it out.
have you i th that's amazing thank you for sharing that yeah. um incredible experience have you stumbled into the the work of of carl jung uh when he talks about the the hero's journey yeah and this and sort of archetype of going to the pit yeah the, 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 you know and then coming back with sacred knowledge yeah that is for not for oneself but as now this sort of wounded healer who has this sacred knowledge that one obtains from almost going into the pit, but not quite, and then being resurrected. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I know uh, um, Joseph Campbell, likewise, and, yes. and, and that's the shamanic journey. And there's shamans in every indigenous society in the world. And it's, it's roughly what happened to me, right? I mean, the shamans exactly. are ritually dismember themselves, go into the land of the dead, and then come back with knowledge that the living need. And, you know, I mean, I'm not obviously not a shaman, but it's interesting. It's, you know, one might wonder if the shamanic journey came from near-death experiences. Exactly. Survived by people, and then they incorporated that in a ritual way. Yeah. yeah. Exactly right. But but I, I think there may be some, you might be able to get some mileage out of that. <laughs> yeah. It, you no, know, exactly. in terms of exploring what, but also even on a personal note, um, as a fellow traveler, I would say to you, I think you may have something of a shamanic role right. moving forward right. because you've experienced something that gives you a voice and a kind of authority that no one else. I mean, that is very, very hard one experience. Nobody else that you're going to almost nobody that you encounter will have that yeah. behind them to say, you know, look, man, when I, when I tell you to live for today, when I tell you to carpe some diem, like, I know whereof I speak. Yeah. I think it's well, beautiful. Well, thank you. And I and um, I'm very honored to have the word shaman used in any in any way related to me. I appreciate that. My wife said to me, uh, I was really struggling with this stuff and um really struggling. And she and, and she said, So ultimately, do you feel lucky or unlucky that it happened to you? And I'm still trying to answer that. And I'm trying to what I'm trying to figure out is how to construct my understanding of what happened in such a way that it makes me feel lucky. And the what the way that I know to feel lucky is to feel that I can help other people. Like when you make luck a matter of the the, the broader welfare, all of a sudden your your fear, you know, like your 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 you lose your fears, right? You lose your your obsession with your own destiny, your own fate. Like you it it's why parenthood feels good. You get to stop worrying about yourself. It's like why combat feels good. You're not worried about yourself. You worry about everybody else. And that loss, that loss of ego, that loss of obsession with your own concerns is enormously liberating. And, Absolutely. And that's what I'm trying to do with this terrifying experience. There's a, a book that had a profound influence for me as a young man um, by Henri Nouwen. Uh, called the the wounded healer, and I've always loved that phrase, the wounded healer. But this because it speaks to I think a very deep truth about those of us who are clinicians, right? Who very often, if you scratch a little bit below the surface of most clinicians, they've had their own suffering, they've had their own backstory of something that they had to overcome. You know, it may not have been the literal pit of a near death experience, but something really, really painful and difficult, and then coming through the other the other side of that and healing. And then from that experience, having better radar for the suffering of others. Yeah. yeah. 
and having greater empathy and compassion, greater sense of calling and mission. I don't know. I just, I just wanted to reflect that back to you because I, I think I see it is, is all I'm saying. <laughs> Thank you. I, I really appreciate that. I will take it very seriously. I, I appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to be, uh, I want to be mindful of, of time here. I, I know uh, you got a busy schedule ahead of you, uh, Sebastian. Uh, so we've got about a little less than 10 minutes here, but I did want to get this final uh, kind of question into you because um, it, it, it feels important and it feels connected also to where this conversation has gone. But in our industry, a common, uh, the industry of Peaks Recovery Centers, behavioral health, you know, substance use disorder, uh, mental health disorders that we treat, inpatient ambulatory levels of care and so forth. Uh, colloquial phrase, I forget the gentleman who originally created it, but there's a profound TED Talk video if you just Google the language, um, that is the opposite of addiction is not sobriety, uh, but connection. And that stated, on the one hand, we have a nation engulfed in a romanticized freedom. You know, what is government doing for me? Or how does that situation benefit me? And in that sense of expanding personal freedoms, yet community has a tied to effect such that we seem to have a real commitment to connect to others as well as to obligate ourselves to others. Uh, thus, we are totally free, but at the same time, we are totally connected. And it starts to feel like a paradox or a dialectic is kind of forming here. And just kind of, you know, for the viewers to kind of carry this out with, you know, how do you see this uh, playing out? You know, can, is it a paradox or can we in fact have both? And what would it take from your, you know, observation to really um, have both be uh, the outcome here? Well, again, you know, we, we're, we're, we're not, never gonna have absolute freedom because humans are absolutely dependent on their society for survival, even if that society is only 30 people. So, and to belong to a group, to belong to a society, you have to abide by its norms. And in our society, you can't drive down the left-hand side of the road because you're gonna kill somebody. And if, even if you don't, you'll get arrested. So, you know, we, we, we are never gonna have complete freedom until you walk into the wilderness by yourself, then you're completely free and probably completely dead pretty soon, right? So. I looked at the Pennsylvania frontier in the 1700s where my ancestors on my mother's side were from actually, and they settled there in the 1700s. And, and so the people that poured through the, the Juniata River Gap uh, at, at Western Harrisburg and went west into what they called Indian Territory, you know, they, 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 they were free of the, the sort of dominion of the government, the tyranny of the government, the colonial government, and then the American government. Um, but, with, but to survive out there, they had to band together to fight you know, during the, what they call the Indian Wars, right? There'd be Indian raids along the frontier and the, the scattering of white settlers would cluster together at these palisades, rough palisades to fight off these attacks. And if you weren't willing to do that and to be armed at all times, if you were a man over age 14, if you had to be armed at all times, and if you weren't willing to put down, put your life on the line for the community, you weren't wanted, like get out of here, right? So they lost, they, they gained freedom from the government but they lost their freedom to the community. There is no way to have both, right? And you, you are gonna be obligated to something. And what I would say is that in systems where people are required to make an active and substantial contribution to the group welfare, there's actually a lot of freedom there because systems that depend on that are much more likely to be egalitarian than systems where, um, systems that are so mechanized that you don't need a group, a, a, a ongoing individual contributions to the group welfare, right? And one, one of the great losses of freedom in the otherwise mo wonderful modern society is inequality, 
right? We live in a free society, et cetera. Like, I mean, it's an amazing society, but the economic inequality in the, in this society, I would argue, approaches a law, a real loss of freedom, right? And if you are in a system where everyone must contribute sub substantially to the group enterprise, it, it doesn't it it doesn't mean it necessarily will be freer, but just there's a good there's a great likelihood they'll be freer just because people are more equal in that kind of system. Absolutely, and you know, uh, uh, Steve's Steve's plugged a lot of books here, and I'll just throw this in there as well too. Um, the The Ethics of Ambiguity, written by the late Simone de Beauvoir, is the only philosophical text that I'm aware of uh, where, philosophically speaking, an ethics was promoted on behalf of existentialism, and it says within the text. Uh, that we are most free when we are promoting the freedoms of others. And uh, another beautifully written uh, text by the existentialist I would encourage everybody to read, and one of the better philosophical writings as well, too. Simone de Beauvoir has uh, such a beautiful way of, of, of sharing the story of philosophy in a way that a lot of the past philosophers are just terrible writers and just kind of nonsensically throwing things all over the place. But I love that, and I think it's connected to the egalitarian uh, side of this as well, too, and I think it supports uh, the movement away from the paradox that we presented here today. Uh, and in that regard, um, with the last few moments that we have here with you, uh, Sebastian, I uh, would just love to, uh, for the viewers out there, to just hear where you're taking things moving forward. We heard the you know, text pulse, but uh, what else is going on and, and how do people you know, continue to find you and uh, your texts? Well, I'm not really on social media much. I, I, um, I have a flip phone, I don't have a smartphone, love and it. I really don't. Good uh, for you. Yeah. Wow. I'm, I'm blown away right now. This <laughs> is holding up his iPhone. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it's, I get that it's an amazing tool. My wife has a smartphone. Um, um, I, I, I am what I would call digitally sober. Um, and, uh, nice. and for that matter, she sort of is too. Like she, she keeps the, her phone is not really, does not have any sort of control over her. But I see a lot of that out on the street, you know, in society, like people that are really kind of owned by their, by their phones. And of course, they're really owned by their neurology, right? I mean, the phones have tapped into a neurological response that we have, a neurochemical response. They, you know, these companies figured it out and basically captured us. And they're, they're straight up addiction, right? And I mean, even these, com these companies that manufacture these things know that. Like, it was done deliberately. They've made trillions of dollars off this scam. And it's deprived people of their mental health. It has raised the suicide rate in teenage girls, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, these are real meat world consequences for the algorithms that they developed, right? And so, um, I, you know, I'm 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 living my life, I, and I don't drink for other reasons, but but uh, I'm you know I'm living what I the most sober life in every possible sense, the most sober life that I can uh, possibly have, and you know, large part because. I want to be fully present for my daughters. I mean, and they are, I don't think this would have happened at age 30, maybe, because I was very immature and a lot of running around I wanted to do around the world. But at age 61, they are my, and my wife are my central happiness. And I want nothing coming between that and the good stuff, right? So that's the central purpose of my life. You can, I don't post much online, but I have a website, sebastianyounger.com, uh, where you can sort of see, I'm a documentary filmmaker as well as, a, as an author. And uh, you can see all that material on there. And my my book, Freedom, the paperback, will be coming out on the 4th of July. It has an added uh, last section on January 6th and the concept of freedom in this country. And um, and then Pulse will be out probably a year after that, something like that. I'm working on it right now. Terrific. Well, I appreciate 
the shared experiences and the vulnerability, especially around uh, you know those uh, sobriety, whatever that looks like and however it came about, uh, whether it's the cell phone or alcohol and so forth. Um, I think that's one of the big aspects of our episodes here is vulnerability and, and people really connecting uh, in that sort of way. And so I, I, I greatly appreciate I greatly appreciate all the insights uh, as well too. And I and I really just want to recognize and it and it's not hyperbolic. Like your texts have genuinely changed my view of the world and brought me closer um, to something like community and the obligation toward it. And more than anything, I think you've highlighted the beauty of it that is lost on modernity in that way. And so just so grateful to have this time with shared time with you and Steve. And thank you so very much for being here today and continued success in all that you do, your professional life and certainly uh, your home life uh, with your two daughters and your wife there. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed the conversation. It was a really, really good one. Terrific. It, it's been a real pleasure to, uh, as Sebastian, uh, as somebody who's admired your work for a long time, a real honor to, to share this time with you. And I wish you all the best down the road and uh, would love to get an update in five or 10 years. So. Sure. I, I, I learned a lot listening to you. You have some amazing things to say. So thank you for that. Thank, thank you so much. Brandon, thank you. Thank you for this opportunity. Absolutely. It's been great. All righty. All righty, gentlemen. We'll have a great rest of your day. And uh, thanks for joining me. And uh, we'll, we'll see you guys around. All right. Take care. Bye. Take care. Well, everyone. All right. And that's a wrap here in the studio. Again, big thank you to Sebastian Younger for being on this episode with us today and sharing uh, his extraordinary journeys. Uh, and for the viewers out there, please check out his text. I mean, they're deeply moving. They're so thoughtful. They're so well-written. And especially the audio versions of the text, uh, he narrates them himself and just walks you through the whole journey. It's just a very powerful experience. So highly recommended. And with that stated, unlike Mr. Uh, Younger in that regard, go find Peaks, Finding Peaks on all of our social medias, the Twitters, the TikToks, the Facebooks, uh, the Instagrams, all the things out there so that we can continue to uh, bring these uh, exciting episodes forward to all of you. Uh, finding Peaks at PeaksRecovery.com, or I even think it's Finding Peaks at FindingPeaks.com now. Either way, thoughts, questions, ideas, that's where all these episodes come from. We very much appreciate it and your feedback. Until next time, everybody. Yeah.